Hey guys, it's Jennifer from The Shooter's Mindset. We are here tonight on episode 368 of The Shooter's Mindset. We have our co-host here, Greg Cannon. How's it going? Good. Good. That was short and sweet. Good. Good. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I got to hang out with like all three of y'all all weekend out at the range at Coleman's Creek. Came back, made some good dinner, ate some good food. So fantastic. Had some beautiful weather. I mean, I'll put that one day. Yeah. yeah that's not sarcastic at all. <laughs> well, and our guests of the hour tonight are Scott Whitehead and Brandon Zelensky. We have them here just fresh off of what we're talking about for anybody that doesn't know is the uh, Coleman's Creek uh, Vortex Team Sniper Challenge that just happened this weekend. And Brandon and Scott were able to come out with a win in the Trooper Division. So how's it going, guys? Good, thank you. Yeah, it's going great. Glad to be on here. So we're going to talk all about that match and get into that in a minute. But for the um, first off, I want we'll start with Brandon. I want you to tell people for anybody that doesn't know you or know much about you, how you got into shooting and how you got. <laughs> my phone's on silent. However, it apparently comes through my laptop really loudly. <laughs> Sorry about that. I have spam calling me. I'm sure it is my car warranty that is <laughs> yes, probably an emergency at eight o'clock on a Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Brandon, tell us about how you got into shooting. All right. So how, how it all started, um, you know, growing up small town in Wisconsin, I did a lot of shooting, but um, I don't really count that as, as marksmanship, right? Because nobody taught me how to shoot. It's more of, you know, go hunting and wherever your reticle is, just pull the trigger and that type of thing, right? So even though I, I fired lots of rounds as a kid growing up, um, I didn't actually learn how to shoot until I joined the Marine Corps. So I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school um, and I picked up really fast uh, on everything shooting shooting discipline-wise and ended up, um, once I made it to uh, 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion, um, we had a battalion competition and ended up doing really well in that, uh, winning that. And so they said, well, why don't we send you to, you know, the division championships in the Marine Corps. So I went to third, third division championships, ended up getting a gold medal there. Um, before long, um, through, these, through these steps and shooting competitions within the Marine Corps, I ended up on the Marine Corps rifle team. And that's where I learned an incredible amount about shooting and, you know, ended up working on several disciplines. We did long range, uh, you know, dedicated long range prone um, service rifle. Uh, that's where you really isolate the fundamentals and have to learn it in order to do well. But yeah, learned an incredible amount to include reloading and all that. Um, and actually it wasn't until after uh, I was on the Marine Corps rifle team that I went to sniper school. Um, so I ended up going to sniper school in Hawaii, last class before it, uh, before it got shut down. Um, learned a lot there. So, um, and obviously that's a different discipline. That's more of a tactical oriented uh, shooting discipline where I was, I, was, I was used to high power, you know, wearing the jackets, um, the fundamentals and, you know, that, that type of thing. So um, that gave me a, a well-rounded experience just with those two alone. But of course, I uh, went to some follow-on schools like Urban Sniper School, um, did some more competitions. I uh, ended up leaving the Marine Corps and started competing in the, in the Precision Rifle Series, so competing all over the U.S. Uh, did really well there and kind of moved on from PRS to uh, where we are now, shooting the, the team uh, field sniper matches. And I know we'll get down to, you know, later uh, why, why we choose to shoot, shoot those and, and why we like it. Um, so... 
that's a, I guess how I get into shooting. Scott? I'm, I'm laughing to myself because my story could not be any more different. Um, you know, we didn't have really firearms in the house when I was young, uh, other than the one or two that my brother had stashed in the back of the closet that my parents didn't know about um, that we used to shoot squirrels when they were gone. Um, and uh, when um, well, out of, well out of college, um, my, uh, it was my brother's, I think it was my brother's 40th birthday, 35th birthday, that we, um, we decided to take him, uh, you know, we were kind of had a small interest in firearms. We decided to take him to, uh, to Blackwater for a seven day pistol carbine class. And the two of us just really enjoyed that. And we started shooting more and more and more. We took some long range classes. Um, and, um, and I just kind of picked up the long range side of it. I shot a decent amount of USPSA, decent amount of two gun. Um, but um, the long range was really what I enjoyed the most and what I, I chose to, to really spend most of my time with. Um, but it was, it was always nothing more than a hobby for me. Uh, I'm an engineer by trade. Um, so I take a really analytical approach to things, um, maybe to a fault sometimes. Um, but you know that, that phrase, the weaponization of, of math, kind of sticks with me sometimes. Um, I do understand the technical side of it probably better than a whole lot of people. Um, and I kind of use that to make up for any skills deficiencies I might have sometimes. Um, but I like, uh, I like the preparation that's involved. I like the planning that's involved. I like the math that's involved. Um, and I like the physical challenge. I never served in the military. So uh, it's an opportunity for me to, to play army man, uh, even though I never actually uh, did it. Um, so, you know, I just, I just enjoy, I enjoy shooting in general. I enjoy the long range sport. Um, and I've been shooting team matches now for coming on 10 years. Um, Chris Andrews and I almost 10 years ago showed up at Mammoth having never shot or even been present at a long range shooting match before. And, uh, we almost got laughed out of the place when we told everybody that that was our first match ever. And, and, um, you know, we had a lot of people went like, Ooh, you might be in the wrong place. <laughs> you might've bit off more than you can chew. Um, but you know, we stuck with it and, and, uh, man, I love it. I love the team matches. Yeah. Awesome. And, and uh, I, I know I can, I can speak for Scott, Scott a little bit as far as, you know, why we like the field style matches, the sniper matches, team matches, that type of stuff. Um, him, him and I have both done a lot of PRS and he still does it a little bit here and there, but, um, in my opinion, and, uh, I, I don't want to, you know, upset any of the PRS shooters, but, um, I believe, you know, having shot many different disciplines of long range shooting, um, you know, most of them, to be honest with you. Um, I, I feel like the person that, that goes away winning a PRS match is not necessarily the best shooter. Um, don't get me wrong. They're, they're a great shooter uh, to have gotten to that level. Um, but right now, because of technology and equipment, how fast it's evolved, uh, specifically for PRS, um, you know, people have a way to, to gain just about every, every stage that exists out there. Um, and as a result, you know, that's something that people practice, right? But you, but you need to, to, to become proficient. And so, um, you know, it could be a matter of, you know, the good shooters out there competing with one another um, and the person that games it the most or games it the best is the one walking away with that trophy. But uh, with that said, there, there's a lot to learn in PRS. Um, it makes you a lot better shooter. So, you know, if you, if you are completely new to shooting, I would recommend doing it anyway. Um, you're going to learn a lot, a lot of great people to, to work with and learn from. Uh, but the reason why I like field style matches better is because it's much more involved. You can't really game it. There's a lot of unknowns um, and there's, there's just a lot more to it. So, you know, when I, when I look at what makes a good partner, you know, when I think about well, who do I want for a partner, 
there's really three main things. Um, I want somebody that can shoot really well. I want somebody that can move really well, meaning in good shape, right? You're going to be carrying a lot of weight for long distance, presumably. And uh, lastly, somebody that can communicate well and handle pressure well. And that's probably the, the, the biggest thing right there, because a, a lot of these stages, you know, obviously when the buzzer goes off, you, you kind of go crazy, right? Um, you, you forget things. It's super easy to forget things. Um, but there's a lot of unknowns. So you have to deal with uh, developing a plan, communicating that plan, talking with one another, um, all while on our short timeline. So um, it's very easy and very common for people to kind of freeze and not know what's going on. So um, that's something that Scott does really well, all three of those things. So I think that's why we kind of jive and work well together. Um, but I, I just like how much there is to, uh, is to uh, field shooting. There's just a lot involved um, and a lot to practice on. And, um, you know, there's a lot to mess up more so than a PRS match. But um, I think that's why I, I really enjoy doing the, the sniper style matches. So how did y'all end up together paired for this? I mean, we've shot, we've shot matches before together. Um, and, um, you know, when you, I, I've shot, I've shot matches with a lot of people. I've shot matches with some, some people I consider really good friends who at the end of the match, we kind of looked at each other and went, Let's just stay friends and let's never shoot a match together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, there's one or two people who probably know where they are, who, who they are, who fit into that category. And, and they're, they're great people. There's just, there was no chemistry. There was it just, all we did was butt heads the whole time. And, um, you know, you got to find two people who, who worked well together, uh, who can stand each other for three days straight, um, who can, um, you need somebody who's going to pick you up when you're down and vice versa. You need somebody who uh, is going to be level-headed enough to, um, to work through some low times and, some, and, and not get crazy and, and fall off the wagon when things are going well. Um, it, it, it takes a certain kind of person to, to do well, and you not only have to do well, but you have to work together. Um, and that also means that you have to trust the person. You have to have somebody who in the middle of a stage when the when the when the timer's running and somebody yells to you hey do this right you don't have an argument you just go that person knows something i don't right at this moment i'm just going to do it i'm going to trust them and if you can't do that then you shouldn't be shooting a team match with that person um because that's what it takes um it also takes um you know somebody who's going to going to hike next to you and one of the two of you is going to have a uh i mean a, a broken bone in your foot, you're going to have a blister, you're going to have a, a cramp, you're going to have something, you guys need to work together. Um, don't leave your partner, whether it's during a ruck or during a during a stage. That is very true. It's it's a pretty pretty much a relationship. You know, you can have people that like you may be great friends with that you can't date. Yep. Um, same thing with this, you know, there's there's you, the personalities and everything has to has to really mesh. Um, or else you're going to be button heads and not trusting each other. And that's one of the, uh, the, the big things I've seen out there is, you know, one shooter will tell their partner, Hey, do this. And then the partner doesn't. And I'm sitting there like, you know, I see everything I've been on the stage for like five shooters so far. And it's like, no, really dude, listen, listen to that guy. He, he sees the thing that you don't. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to have that trust in each other. And, and I, uh, I always enjoy talking to the ROs after a match like that um, because they've seen 60 teams work through the same problem. And they've seen the variety of teamwork and the variety of communication that goes on. 
Um, there are teams that communicate horribly. They might be two great shooters, but if they don't work together, they're, they're not going to do well. Mm-hmm. And there are opportunities to make up for some deficiencies in shooting and gear and other things by good planning and good communication and some trust. So that, that's absolutely a huge part of this. I think that was evidenced in the communications stage. <laughs> uh, they had a stage for anybody that wasn't there that the, the two partners had to split and go at, across a deck and they had a walkie talkie and Scott had Brandon's targets written down with the distances and Brandon had Scott's. Every team was like that, they had each other's. And it was very specific things like the sniper missing a right eye. And there were more targets out there than were on the cards. So it was, they really had to communicate and, you know, finding for each other. And it was really interesting. We stood up there for a bit videoing. We probably did 10 different teams that we saw go through that and watching the communication. uh, You know, some were like, you know, over there, I mean, by the, by the patch of dirt and you're like well there's dirt everywhere by the tree there's pine which what kind of tree the pine tree well there's like five thousand pine trees so it was interesting hearing and then some would say you know um on the, the third ridge on the right side by the tree line go back behind the sasquatch and there's this you know and those people like immediately found it um and so the communication you could really tell which team were um, just aligned and, and had kind of practiced how they were going to talk versus the ones that did it and got up there. There was one guy that was not talking in the walkie talkie and he's like, you know, I can't hear you. I can't hear. And he finally goes, are you talking to the walkie talkie? Then the next thing you hear is no. <laughs> so it was funny, but I, I mean, the communication is such a big vital part of these matches. Yeah, it's yeah, a huge absolutely. Part. Yeah, that, that wasn't a particularly good stage for anybody that I'm aware of anyway, but um, but especially so because uh, that, that's when the fog rolled in that day. So everything was compressed and we had a three minute time limit as compared to a five limit time. Limit. So that's really, really find out um, the importance of communication it has to be very short, very concise. Um, even us, you know, we, we could have definitely worked on that. We could have had a different game plan, but after the fact, right, much easier. But it was certainly a tough stage for everybody. But communication is what got you points or not points. Yep, absolutely. One thing Brandon and I work with a lot is uh, our, our target reference points called TRPs. It, we, we talk a lot basically before the stage um, so that we're, we're trying to prepare our language so that we know what we're talking about. Um, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of opportunities sometimes to, uh, to know what the layout's gonna be and kind of plan on, on some, some words you're gonna use uh, to help you with communication. And, and that's just another example, I think, of, of some of the things that Brendan and I do well when we, when we plan out a, a, a stage, because the stage is blind. We don't have a clue where the targets are or how far they are away. But if we know, if we agree on some wording, uh, then that'll help us talk each other onto targets a lot quicker. Exactly. There, there are many, um, in fact, there are probably more unknowns in these type of stages and matches uh, than known variables, right? So um, this is a way for us to kind of limit those unknowns because even though we don't know specifically what that layout might be, what the range may look like, um, we, we know some reference points. We know what, um, what kind of layout we're gonna be shooting in, even though we don't know what exists inside of it. So um, by giving those reference points ahead of time, that's one less thing that we have to do on the clock. So you know, the 15, 20 seconds uh, in one stage that we save by having these reference points ahead of time, 
um, is potentially, you know, three, six, you know, who, who knows how many additional points in the end. Uh, super important for us. So, like, what would you guys use as reference points? Are you doing, like, an arbitrary, like, a baseball field going on, or do you have pre-established left and right? Yeah, it, field? yeah it, it varies. Um, obviously, we do ideally want a left and right limit. You know, it could be as simple as, hey, we know we're shooting down this lane, you know, so, so it, could, it could be as simple as all we know is there's a lane that we're shooting down. So if I say, Scott, left edge or half left middle, he knows that if I say half left, he's looking straight down that lane, and he knows that the target is somewhere in between the middle of the range and the far left of the range, right split in the middle. Um, obviously, it, it tends to be more elaborate and extensive than that. So um, we want to we want to look for things that are very prominent because, again, you don't have a whole lot of time to sit there and, and look at things in detail when you're, when you're on the clock. So um, if there's one big tree that sticks out, if there's a man-made feature that sticks out, um, sort of the orientation of a road going out, out through there. Um, whatever whatever is big and kind of pops out, we want to use those, and we, we don't really want to go too small with it, right? We want to go kind of bold. So if I say, hey, um, you know, if I if I have something super small that he can't really see right away, and he tries to look for it, you know, he's going to spend ten seconds searching for it while I try to talk him on. Whereas compared to what I say, this general area, he already knows right away that general area is over there because there's a car over there, right? He's got look at the car; he can see the car right away. Um, so that, that kind of helps us helps us out with it. But as many uh, large, typically man-made features as we can find or, or just prominent features, uh, we can call those out ahead of time. So that way um, I can just, my eyes can go straight to it. And then we give a small talk on after that. Yeah. Do, do you guys take a lot of that stuff in with your eyes before you get down on glass? Like I've, I saw some people run up to a stage and, you know, you're, you start off and you're going this way, you know, sideways from the stage and they run up and they set their gun down and they get down behind their gun, they get on their glass, and that's the first time they're, they're looking down range. A scope is a, is a great way to get tunnel vision. Um, it's a great shooting device, but it's also uh, very restrictive. Um, you know, we, we almost always will take a quick look, naked eye, um, and then, uh, I mean, that might be while we're running up to the stage. Um, you know, while we're throwing our pack on the ground and, and setting things up, we're kind of glancing down range. And, um, you know, this match, uh, Joe doesn't paint his targets. Almost all the targets were just bare steel to start. Um, they're harder to find. They're harder to see naked eye. You can sometimes get away with it, but in most cases, you're going to see less. They're not a, there's not a painted white target that's going to stick out on most of the stages. Um, so, uh, you know, it does require some observation. Um, binoculars are the way to go uh, for most of these stages. Binoculars with range finder are the real great tool. Um, and uh, we both use the Vortex Fury 5000s and, and they're, they're terrific for that. Um, you, you do need a big field of view, but you also need some magnification and the clarity to pick out targets. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely get, to, get into your scope too soon and then never find anything. Yeah, that's very true. And like, I, probably the, the most obvious one of those was the man-made object stage, whatever it was called, where it was, there's targets near the blue cooler with the white lid there's targets near the blue barrel there's targets near the berm people run in get on glass and i can't see these targets anywhere my god my glasses are covered in water and there's the blue barrel right there <laughs> yep Something blue and white that might be a cooler and you know there's the only pile of dirt i see on the range right there y'all take take, take a look <laughs> absolutely right absolutely yep. right so in this match there were there were three different divisions you know you're all shooting the same course of fire 
Um, but you got Lurper, Long Range, Recon Patrol, Trooper, and Mechanized. So what made you guys choose to uh, to shoot Trooper for, for this <laughs> event versus something else? Well, um, I, I typically always want to go with the most difficult division. Um, well, I guess my main problem with this one is I absolutely hate the cold. So um, I knew it was going to be a little bit cold, and indeed it was, you know, for this match. Mm-hmm. So, um, but regardless, I still wanted to do the, the Lurp division, you know, the one where you have to camp out overnight. But I, I know Scott was going to be against it from the get-go. Uh, he, he, tends to, he tends to have a victim mentality when it comes to uh, sleeping in a tent outside. I am. So I've, I've been abused by yeah. tents before. <laughs> yeah. So I, we, we, basically, we basically settled on, on Trooper, and it didn't take a whole lot of convincing because, um, you know, again, I, I hate the cold, and I didn't really feel like uh, sleeping out in the tent. But uh, I think we made the right call. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've done plenty of uh, – matches in in the equivalent of the LORP division tough man division um before um including just mammoth just a little while ago um and um i i just i don't sleep in a tent i i, I can't explain it but i don't I, I sit there and stare at the inside of the tent all night so it's a it's a miserable experience sometimes by day three when you haven't slept in two nights and um and just decided that wasn't interested in doing that but i love the rucks i love the challenge of that i love the physical aspect of that i love the you know fighting through the kind of some soreness and exhaustion and um you know the the rucks change the match drastically um you know there's there's scores for each division um and you really cannot compare one class to another even though they shot the same stages um the challenges the physical challenges are completely different through the three the three divisions and um it's uh it, it really does make a difference whether you um, have covered 30 miles over the course of the weekend and lightened your gear so that you can survive that. Uh, or whether you rode in the back of a truck and, and, um, carried everything you want to have. So, you know, they're the, the three, the three divisions are, are all very different animals. Um, and that's just, uh, that's why we chose the one we did. Yeah. Cause and, I, and, um, and, and I didn't really want to do mechanized because, you know, obviously Scott and I have, um, different matches planned in, in the future. I need to make sure he's still in good shape. So I don't want him doing mechanized and you know, <laughs> driving him to the stages. So I uh, had to make sure we're still putting on some miles. Yeah, imagine, I, like, mechanized, you could shoot your 30 pound BR, six BR, yeah. be fine. Sure. That would be a, quite a challenge in a yeah, It's not an issue there. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in the second half of my forties. I don't have, I don't have that many more years left of, of uh, throwing on a pack and, and doing that, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it for as long as I can. That's awesome. Did, did you find yourself packing differently? Obviously, you know, you didn't bring a tent and crap like that. Um, but what was your loadout? What, what were the key differences in what you bought with you for, you know, being able to go back to the hotel at night versus at Mammoth? Um, you get to carry a little bit less ammo. Um, I think probably the biggest advantage is that you can customize your clothing for the forecast for each day. Um, you can, you can be prepared for the cold rainy day without carrying that gear with you for three days. Um, we made some concessions, adding weight to carry a little bit more gear that would help us shoot. For instance, at Mammoth, my partner and I carried one tripod and at this match, we carried one each. Um, gives you more flexibility when you have that arrangement. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's definitely opportunities to carry a little bit more weight in shooting gear, a little bit less weight in survival camping gear. 
um, when you're in the, the division that we were in. Um, and obviously when you get to mechanized, it's even more so. Yeah, I'm about to say the mechanized guys, I saw gamer plates and big thick barrels and everything. So it's it's kind of fun to walk around and look at what someone's carrying and be like, I wonder what division they're in and take a well, game, look and the gamer gamer plate's a perfect example and, and shout out to Dave Preston who was who was there with us. Um, but um, I had a gray ops mini plate that I decided to bring with me. I didn't carry it at Mammoth, uh, did carry it this weekend and used it several times. So, um, you know, that's, that's a perfect example of one of those decisions that you make just a little bit differently depending on your, your class uh, and your ability to withstand the rucks. The, the Vortex rucks are tough, but they are not as quite as tough time-wise as Mammoth. Um, so you find yourself kind of flirting with the ability to carry just a little bit more weight. And another great thing about uh, Trooper Division in particular is that um, because you're not camping out, you're going back to a hotel once you're done with the night, um, you can make decisions based off of the feedback that you got in that, you know, the first day. So first day we get back, we, we said, hey, uh, hey, Scott, you know, we didn't use this piece of gear or this piece of gear. Should we stick with it for, for day two? Do you want to swap it out or do we need to make this thing lighter? And uh, we, we did a little bit of that during this match where, you know, we decided, hey, uh, we're not really using this bag much. Um, so why don't we still bring one of those, but let's bring a lighter one because we don't want to just add weight for no reason, right? So we made some decisions, you know, from, from day to day um, that impacted uh, our physical ability and our shooting ability. Um, so that's always a great, great benefit to have where, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a LERP, you don't really have that, you know, you're stuck with what you're stuck with, regardless of weather, regardless of what type of match it is or um, how the stages end up being. So that's always a benefit. That is, that is pretty cool. I, I like how they, there's so many different options for stages or for divisions and can kind of custom tailor to your likings. I, I kind of like the trooper too. It sounds, you know, you can carry a little bit less or a little bit more depending on how you're feeling. For me, I'm not in the same shape as you guys. So be like, cool, I could do this with like my camelback on my back. And <laughs> an ammo novel. You know, and, and, Rucking requires some training, but one of the reasons I think I like rucking is that it's as much a mental exercise as it is a physical one. Um, you, can, you can complete a ruck with, without the cardio of a runner, uh, without the strength of a lifter. You, you just have to put one foot in front of the other and do it over and over again. And, and half of it is a mindset game. Half of it is a keeping your head <clears throat> in and just keep pushing forward and accomplish the task. Um, it's not, um, it's, you don't have to be a marathoner to finish these rucks. Um, you just have to have a tenacity about you. And, um, and most of the people, uh, you know, there are plenty of people who complete these rucks who aren't in the shape that even I am. And, and I can't keep up with Brandon. If this turned into a foot race, he'd leave me and, and I'd catch up to him an hour later, um, at the finish line after he's six beers in. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's not what these are about. There's a time hack to complete the ruck and there's no need to expend energy beyond what you have to, to complete that in the time limit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were jokingly, you know, call ourselves 17 minute club, um, because the limits were 18 and there was no reason to do 15s. There was no reason to do 14s, even though we trained that way. Um, we just kind of took a slow, relaxing walk in the park and, and finished when we needed to finish. And there was no reason to do anything more. As a result, we got to our stages. We weren't sore, we weren't hurt, and um, we were fresh enough to shoot well. So- I would have um, loved 17 minutes at Mammoth. 
Yeah, yes, mammoths, you don't have that option. <laughs> but the, the terrain at Vortex makes uh, what sounds like a much easier time hack at times just as difficult. Um, you know, you get to, into some of those goat trails and water crossings and things like that. And you better have a little bit of time padded um, before you, you step off because you're gonna be, you're gonna be hurting if you get to those trails and, and you still have to do 18 sometimes. Yeah, and, and we try to strategize every aspect of the map so you can possibly strategize. And of course, um, Scott does a great job at that because you know anything you can get data for, he's got data for that I promise <laughs> you. So, um, but yeah, the, the rucks themselves, um, it, it's certainly beneficial to just hold back and not, to, not go too crazy because you know that, that's wasted effort. You know, you finish with you know 10 minutes to spare, you finish a long rock with 10 minutes to spare, um, you've just exhausted yourself and there's no saying how much that mental or physical exhaustion will um, cost you in, in terms of points on the next stage. Or, you know, you're, you're creating unnecessary hot spots and blisters on your feet um, that you normally wouldn't have if you would have been going, you know, nice and slow. Now, sometimes there, there's matches out there where it benefits to go faster because there's a reward, right? In this case, there's no reward. So the strategy is just to, um, you know, go slow enough to where we're comfortable um, that we're gonna finish in time. And there's no need to cause unnecessary blisters or wasted effort. Um, so that's that, you know, this whole thing is part of the strategy. We're always keeping a pace count. So Scott's got the pace while we're going the whole time with, with updates along the way. So um, yeah, the strategy goes way beyond just the, the stages themselves. So how long were the rucks? Just for people that weren't there. I think this year we did probably a little over 20 miles total. Um, we gave, uh, we changed, I think they changed up a few of the rucks on the last day because of the weather. Um, the, uh, the red clay that's out there gets really, really treacherous. I mean, just flat out dangerous, frankly, when it gets wet. Um, so mm -hmm. on the last day, they skipped a couple of the, um, the goat trail rucks and we just stuck, us, uh, stuck to the gravel roads. Um, so we, we shortened things up a little bit, but a little over 20 miles over the course of the weekend. Uh, I think uh, rucks typically around three or four miles each um, in and out, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, there were not rucks during the course of the day. So it was, you ruck out to a central point, shoot your five stages over the course of the day, and then ruck back. And that was a nice flat gravel road too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that last, that last hill is, is soul crushing. Uh, you, you, that, I've just learned that when you come over where you're going to see that, just look down, just look down at your feet plan your footing one step at a time. And, and at some point you'll go, oh, I'm at the top. But if you look up, oh, it's, yeah, it's gonna be a bad day. At least on a Friday morning, you didn't have to look down because it was so dark and foggy, you couldn't see 10 feet in front of you. That's true. It was pretty Yeah, yeah we ended up hiking with people. Uh, you know, Jose was with us, he was hiking with us. and. Um, that resulted in us slowly getting faster and faster. Uh, at, you know, Scott and I ha had a plan for, for every for every ruck, like, hey, this is going to be our pace. Let's stick to it. And well, next thing you know, we're, you know, we're two minutes faster than that because Jose's uh, stepping ahead of us. and We're trying to keep up with him. So we had to keep reminding him, hey, slow down, slow down, um, which yeah. I, I guess is not something he's capable of doing. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so we uh, but we always adjusted it. You know, if we need to if we were going way too fast, we would slow down for a while. Um, oh, there's a nice picture there. There's, yeah. there's, 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 there's that nice hill. That second one. Yeah. After that, after that rise is oof, brutal. So it, it goes down like twice as deep as it does here. Like this is actually the video of everybody leaving on the 
on the ruck back and there's the person that doesn't understand the strategy about uh you know time management that showed up for the four wheeler made it the first day to be fair there are some of those guys you know this match is probably i don't know half uh military and law enforcement active duty guys and um some of those guys have the fitness level to be able to do that and still come in fresher than i do yeah so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fault them for it i'm not gonna tell them they're doing it wrong um because some of these guys can run nine minute miles with a 75 pound pack all morning and still be fresher than i am if i was sitting on my couch um so you know some people can get away with it it becomes strategizing for your own strengths and weaknesses. And I know my strengths and weaknesses. I'm not in the shape uh, that I was when I was 21 playing college football. Lots changed since then. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, this, the Vortex series in, in, in general is a great way for many different types of people to train because it's so um, realistic in terms of um, what a sniper would do. So, you know, the people in the military um, that are going through this stuff right now, or maybe they're going through it in the future, they're trying to prepare for it. Um, you know, they can take the, the rucks more seriously and, and, you know, try to max out and go as fast as they can. Um, but all around, everything you do in this match is a good training opportunity, especially for, you know, those in the military or, or you know, just getting into it, preparing for uh, a course of some sort. So um, the, the, stages, the stages are not much different from the rucks in that regard. You know, you're still trying to train yourself to do one thing or another, and you're always going to learn, learn throughout the process, you know, whether it be... Um, uh, what not to do, what to do, what to wear, uh, when not to wear things, which, you know, Scott and I had some experience with that this weekend with the whole rain gear. Um, but there's, there's a lot to be able to practice here. It's a good opportunity. So at this match, there were not any target failures that I know of. <laughs> and possibly uh, partly in, in, you know, reason being because uh, there's this little company that I think two friends maybe <laughs> do something about. So Chris you and I, tell us about best targets, Scott? Chris and I take a lot of pride in that, uh, a lot of pride. Um, yeah, we've, um, you know, we've always tried to design targets that were, that, that a match director can put up and, and not worry about. Um, target failures are a distraction to a match. They cause uh, time issues. They cause frustration in the competitors, frustration for match directors, frustration for ROs. Um, they, they cause scoring discrepancies and all sorts of things. Um, so it's great when you don't have any. Um, you know, we've run, our, our targets have run tons and tons of these field matches, taken, taken thousands and thousands of rounds. Um, and, and our failures are, are nearly zero. Um, you know, you can't, uh, you can't, build an indestructible t-post there's still things that can happen um but um but we've got a great track record at some of these matches and, and we're really proud of it uh chris and i started the match because we were shooting a plate rack at a competition that we felt like was unfair and giving some competitors an advantage and competitors were tinkering with when they'd go to reset the plates and and we said we're gonna we think we can do it better um and i as for our hook hanger system, that, that is what uh, goes on T-Post and is being used at these matches, I really feel like we succeeded. I think it's a great system. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a thing. Like every match, there's always target failures, but the matches that I've been at that are all exclusively best targets, like it's just weird. They just work really, really good. Yeah, and, that, and the hook and hangers the are great because they, they ring well. 
They, they make it easier to score because you can hear them. They visibly allow enough movement that, they, uh, that you see the target move and react to a hit. Um, and all those things are important as well. If you over-constrain a piece of steel, not only does it take more stress, but it's harder to, it's harder to hear, it's harder to see, uh, all those things. And not to mention, it's more fun when you get a good clang out of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, all those things, I think, uh, make for a good product, and, and we're really proud of it. Yeah, our, our last match that uh, Scott and I did together, Snipers Unknown at GTI, um, that was the opposite side of the spectrum because I remember uh, we, we were just sitting out, we just finished the stage, and all of a sudden we, he we heard this whizzing in the air, and um, I got hit right in the thigh. And uh, at first, you know, I thought it was a, a stray bullet because that's what it looked like, it was a little hunk of steel. And uh, everybody heard it, but it came whizzing through the air, uh, hit me right in the inner thigh. Uh, luckily it wasn't anywhere else, but it hit me in the inner thigh. And uh, well, we ended up finding out that it was a, a chunk of steel from an actual target, right? So they were, uh, it was a stage where we were shooting rifle close up in a uh, urban environment. And because the, the velocity of the rounds were so quick and the, the steel was kind of shitty at that time or um, at, the, at that match there, um, it just took a hunk of steel right out of the target and some, something bounced off and ended up coming like, I don't know, what was it, 100 yards away from us, Scott? I mean, the, so, this, yeah, the targets were set probably several hundred yards away. And that yeah, thing so, whizzed in, sounded like a round coming in, and I heard it whistle right by me, and all of a sudden, Brendan keels over. I laugh about it now, yeah. uh, but it was... Yeah. Uh, if, you have the, uh, if you have the right type of steel, you know, if we were using best targets, uh, you know, that wouldn't have happened, right? We're not taking hunks out of uh, your targets, because it just doesn't happen. You know, it's the right type of steel, uh, rightly designed, so... Um, you know, if we would have had the best target for that match, we wouldn't have issues like that. But I'm, I'm thankful nothing bad happened uh, from that situation. But um, it's cer certainly a learning, learning point for the match director, the ROs, and, and us as well. You know, uh, the type of steel does matter. That is true. <clears throat> so we're about at the, the midpoint of the show. Um, just for those of you listening, watching, whatever, there are several different ways to view the show. Um, we go live every Tuesday evenings on facebook live on the shooter's mindset facebook page we're trying out this new thing where we do it an hour earlier um we go live at eight we're kind of liking it probably gonna end up staying like that unless we got like some guests from california or something you know all y'all out west being behind the times um i'm getting too old i gotta be able to go to bed early or else you're gonna turn into a pumpkin yes i do turn into a pumpkin i get cranky mm-hmm but um, we also, the videos will stay live on Facebook so you can catch us the next day. Um, within some reasonable time frame, they'll be uploaded onto uh, YouTube. And then also you can take us with us on any of the podcast platforms. So um, Google, Apple, Spotify, there's about nine of them that we're on. Just search for the Shooter's Mindset, subscribe there, and then you can uh, take us with you on the road. So our next question is, uh, what is the mindset that you guys have when you're walking up to one of these blind stages, not knowing what to expect? Do you guys have like a mental checklist that you go through, specific things that you look for? And I know it's going to, with the vast differences of some of these stages, um, it really depends. But is there like a basic like, okay, I got my stage brief, but these are the things that I need to look for when I'm walking up to a stage? Yeah, so we have, we have an ongoing um, kind of stage technique checklist. And uh, I say ongoing because there's, there's things that we add and take away from it on a continuous basis. But um, from stage to stage, there's going to be different things you have to focus on because there's different knowns and unknowns. But um, just some blanket uh, techniques that we have, um, not all of them, but some of them that we use 
um, we remind ourselves of because uh, when you're under pressure, there's a lot of things that your mind just normally doesn't think of, right? Because there's so much that you're, you're thinking about at that time of the, of the stage, right? There's so much to focus on and under a very short time constraint. So um, one thing that we do is during a stage, we tell ourselves that, hey, if, it's, if, if we're willing to skip a target, let's do it, right? So there, there should always be some, some person focused on time management. Typically, I'm the time management guy, so I'll look at our, our timeline and say, hey, at this point in time, we need to do this. So that's something that we have to focus on before as well, because I need to know um, as I step up to that stage, like, all right, I'm in charge of time. I got to remember to set my timer. Um, I know that at this particular time, this has to happen. I know that um, if there's a contingency that we set in place and say, hey, uh, Scott, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't engage this, this many targets by this amount of time, I'm going to say, hey, it's time to move and we're moving, right? So um, that's something that we have to consider before a match and, uh, excuse me, before a stage and especially during it. And um, that, that goes to uh, uh, our predetermined timelines. That's what we call that. So our timelines for the, for the stage themselves. We talked a little bit about TRPs. That's another thing that we um, reiterate multiple times, honestly, as much as we can before a stage, right? I'll say, hey, uh, all right, Scott, this is what we have for target reference points. We'll go over and over it because those are also easy to forget. You can't really go over things too many times. So this is how many target reference points we have. This is what they look like. This is where they're located. And we also have applications that allow us to give uh, some overhead imagery. Um, usually it's pretty old, right? So it doesn't help a lot, but it, it does help a little bit. So um, with that topography, it can give us a little bit of the wind and location typically. Um, it's not super accurate because the, the wind at that location is an average um, of different areas that are surrounding us and it's high up above us. But it does give us a, a general idea of the, the wind direction because when we get up to our stage, we can obviously feel and see the wind at our location, but we don't really know what the wind is doing down there. So it kind of helps us out. So as much as we can know um, of the terrain beforehand does help us out. And the stage briefing itself. So you're gonna get a stage briefing on every stage and it could vary a lot. You know, they could give you a very little bit of information that could give you a lot. We don't really know. But um, what we tend to do is try to overanalyze it, honestly. So we'll, we'll get whatever information, we take our notes, we'll get back and immediately um, determine a game plan. And um, we wanna look at those notes over and over because there are sometimes things that you don't normally think about um, that would give you a huge advantage. And you know, if 90% if of the people going through the stage do the same thing, you kind of get in the habit of, hey, this is what I'm gonna be doing. This is the way to go about it. And then you see that one, that one team, you know, after the stages are all done, like, hey man, you guys did this. I'm like, crap, you didn't, we didn't even think about that. So, you know, the more you kind of analyze uh, what, you're, what you're told by the range officer, um, the more you, the more opportunity you have for, to, you know, to make those decisions and find um, ideas and tricks that you normally wouldn't think about that's actually allowed in that match. So you wanna, you wanna be as uh, efficient as possible when you get up there in your own time. And all of, those, all of those lessons, all of those things that are on that checklist have come from failures we've had, all mm -hmm. of them. Yeah. Um, and, and not only failures we've had, but sometimes failures we continue to have. Um, it's embarrassing, but also sometimes educational to come off a stage and realize you made a mistake and realize it's the same mistake you made a year ago and it's the same mistake you made two years before that. Um, th there is, um, you know, you, you just have to, you go through those and you make those mistakes and you learn the lessons and the best way to capture those lessons and, and come back from them is to kind of give yourself that list. Um, there's, there's lessons you learn like, hey, we should have done this. We should have stopped and realized this. Um, Brandon's comment about, you know, skipping targets comes from 
well, you have a you have a stage where you have, you know you're hit, you're allowed to hit every target twice, let's say, and there's five targets. Well, if the first one's a ruler at 700 yards, maybe it's not worth spending half of your stage time trying to hit that ruler. Maybe you should just skip it and go to the next one, right? And and that that ability to make those calls on the clock because they're not going to tell you how small the target is or how far away it is away before the the bell rings. You have to be able to to make that call on the clock quickly and then that comes back to the trust thing if brandon's about to shoot and i say screw it skip that target go to the next one right we it's, it's not time to have a 30 second argument about whether or not we're going to shoot that target if the person who's not on glass who is generally the controller generally the person who's not shooting is the person who makes the call and if i'm not shooting and he's shooting and i take one look at it and go nope we're not shooting this one go to the next one then if the, if the team trust is there, he just swings to the next target and pulls the trigger. And there's no discussion about it. Um, that discussion, that debate is not efficient. But all those lessons have, have been hard learned. Um, when you, you know, every once in a while, if you happen to be walking up to a stage, there might be a spotting scope that, a mat, that an RO is using. It might be pointed toward the targets. Maybe as you walk up to the stage, you should take a glimpse at the spotting scope and see where it's pointed. Might help you. Yeah. We've made that mistake before and we don't make it anymore. It's on the list. So those, those lists are incredibly valuable um, and uh, they, are, they are hard lessons to learn, but they'll help if you, if you take them to heart. Yeah, and, and I would say that they're critical because there's, there's a ton of different things that are on there, right? And you can only have so much in your mind and focus on so much when you're going up that stage and, and your focus is the stage itself. So, um, you know, you can't multitask that much. You have to have a list because um, let's just say, uh, you know, Scott and I were to shoot a, a stage and not go through a pre-shot checklist. And next thing you know, we get done with that stage, we finish up and we realize that, hey, we didn't do as well as we should have because of one of these reasons that were on our list that we didn't look at, right? So we don't want that to happen. But our, our checklist, you know, a lot of it's what ifs, because again, there's a lot of unknowns in, in these stages. So when we, when we talk to each other and discuss this, we're saying, hey, um, all right, what if this happens? This is what we're gonna do. What if this happens? This is what we're gonna do. So that way, you know, like, like Scott said, the trust is there. So I know that when a decision needs to be made during a stage and I'm, I'm focusing on my shooting and one of those what ifs happen, I'm listening to them. There, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. We're just doing it. Um, Cause I know it's, it's likely what we had discussed and there's a reason behind it. So we just go ahead and do it. You got to keep the goal in mind too. And the goal is to maximize team points. That's it. Exactly. That's everything else is irrelevant, right? I don't shoot because, Hey, I haven't, I didn't get to shoot last stage and I want to shoot this stage. The person who shoots is the person who can get the most points in the fewest seconds. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, this match, especially with some of its abbreviated stages, it was clear, especially since Brandon's rifle ballistically is very similar to mine, um, that the secondary targets were easier, quicker, and more sometimes more points available faster, right? So there was no point to try to say, hey, we're going to split three minutes, 90 seconds each. We're going to set a timer, and we're going to switch, and we're going to try to be fair. Well, fair goes right out the window. The goal is team points. So if he gets on the rifle and he's hitting targets continuously and he can hit targets right up to the three minute mark and I never pull the trigger. 
that's fine with me. So that's another one of those team trust things. Uh, someone's got to make a call and um, that's, you know, you make that call on the clock, but if that's the call, then that's the call. Keep the goal in mind. Exactly. And, and the goal always remains the same, but um, it, it differs a little bit when time has changed, uh, time, time changes, right? So, you know, most of these stages were, were five minutes each, but then uh, when fog rolled in one morning and, and took up much part of the day because we couldn't shoot in the fog, um, it resulted in the, the stages being shortened to three minutes. And so Scott and I quickly learned that um, that two minutes difference is huge when you're actually shooting because, you, you know, you shoot a three minute stage, it feels like a one minute stage because there's so many different things you have to do in, a, in those three minutes. And so with the goal in mind of trying to maximize our points and just get everything we can, um, there's some things that you just have to throw out, right? Um, there's these points available, these points available, these points available. Well, guess what? You know, we're, let's not even try for this one. We, we know we're not going to get it. We don't have enough time, right? What if we just focus on these two? We could probably get more points that way. So, you know, we had to utilize that strategy and kind of learn when to work independently uh, versus only as a team. You know, if you have enough time, obviously it's better to work completely as a team the entire time, right? Uh, I'm finding targets for Scott. He's over there behind the gun. I'm telling him what to do. I'm telling him where they are. That's the ideal scenario. And then we have enough time for, for both shooters to engage in that type of shooter spotter dialogue. Uh, when time is, is not there and we don't have much time, you know, hey, Scott, you know, what do you think about this? You know, we have three minutes. What if you try to locate as many of you as you can and engage them on your own? Well, I do this. And of course, if I end up just seeing your target, I'll give you a quick talk on, you know, why don't we just help each other out? You know, I feel like we might get more targets this way. So um, that's another th thing to keep in mind when strategizing. You know, how, how much time do you have and what can you accomplish in that amount of time? Oops, sorry, I was muted. It is, it is really crazy to see how the mindset does change with the amount of available time. And I guess that's kind of one of the biggest things about these matches in general is to be able to quickly adapt and overcome because I know not every, every little useful piece of information that you need for the stage is given in the stage briefs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I... Uh, worked one stage where the definition of the word defilade was not in the uh, stage brief. And we had a lot of people having fun with that. You had fun on that one, didn't you, Scott? Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the mental game does change and the mental game changes with unknown stages quite a bit. You know, the, that a, a lot of those Lanny Basham kind of um, mental game lessons, they still apply, um, but there's a, there's a curveball thrown into them when you don't know quite what you're going to see. Um, Brendan and I still do a lot of rehearsals. Um, we still, you know, we'll read a stage, we'll hear the stage brief, we'll ask our questions, we'll go back to our prep area. And we like to shoot kind of halfway or slightly behind halfway in the group to give ourselves a maximum amount of time to prepare. And we'll very often literally say, okay, I'm gonna have this in this hand, this in this hand. And he'll say, okay, I'm gonna have this in this hand and this in this hand on my pack on my back. Okay, now we're gonna run up. I'm gonna put my rifle down here. We're gonna do this. I'm gonna hand this to you. You're gonna get into here. You're gonna get into the truck. I'm gonna throw you this. I'm gonna throw you this. Then I'm gonna climb in with this while you're doing this. And we talk through that. And we might have that same discussion four or five times and, and just repeat it, right? Just rehearse it. But it's amazing how when you do that, just four or five times, it gets in your brain. Mm -hmm. And when it's time to execute, you just do it. And you do everything exactly the way you rehearse it and discuss it. So there are still all those, um, all those mental aspects that, that where the rehearsal really comes into play. And obviously one of the huge lessons of, of these kind of matches, 
you very rarely walk away from a stage feeling like you killed it. Um, all of this is not, you know, you talk about like a PRS stage where you might clean a stage and you did everything you could, you maximized your score. Well, that's great. You, you don't clean these stages. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very rarely does anyone clean any of these stages, right? There's always mistakes, but your mistakes are opportunities for improvement. And that's all they are. You can't carry them with you. You can't change them. The, once the buzzer is, has rang after your time's up, you can't go back and change your score. So start working on the next stage. And if there's a lesson to be learned, then after your, after your match is over, then write it down and work on improving it for next time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, you saying you're not going to clean a stage, you don't really know how you did. The amount of people, you know, friends shooting, shooting stages, they come up, I'm like, dude, great shooting. And they're like, yeah, you know, we sucked it up. So like, no, like, I've watched your whole squad shoot this stage and you, 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 you beat like all of them. You did good, bud. Um, yeah, that's one of the crazy things about these type of matches is, you know, you, you can get down with a stage and feel horrible based on your performance. But, you know, in reality, uh, you could be the top 10% or, or maybe you had the best score, um, you know, from, from everybody. You don't really know that because, um, again, these stages are very realistic and that makes things difficult, right? Um, you're not going to almost I don't think there's probably one stage, uh, maybe one easy stage on like the third day or something that we cleaned. But, you know, it's just not going to happen all that often. But um, but certainly, yeah, rehearsals, going back to rehearsal, Scott, I mean, that's probably one of the most important things. And I feel like that's something that probably most people don't do enough of, because if you were to, you know, when we go through a rehearsal for the first time, you know, I feel confident that I know what's going on. Scott feels confident he knows what's going on. And a lot of people just stop there. Right. Because I know what I'm doing. You know what you're doing. That's all we need to do, right? Well, then you get under all that pressure and, you know, the buzzer starts and you're kind of freaking out because there's a lot of different moving parts going on at once. Um, you would quickly forget a lot of those things uh, very quickly. So, you know, all the, all the range officers that are out there observing all this, you know, if you were to say, um, hey, just go rehearse this once. I want you guys to go shoot it. Um, they're going to be able to see those mistakes right away that, you know, um, us rehearsing it five times, six times, you know, to the point where everything is just redundant and, you know, we know it already, right? But um, that's what makes a difference in, in uh, efficiency during a stage. So super important. Yeah, and that's that's useful in all aspects of shooting sports. You know, um, when I was shooting USPSA, you get your stage walkthroughs and I'm, I'm a little bit slow. So I, I take a long time to learn stuff. I will walk that stage as many times as I want, go pew, 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 pew. Reload here, pew, 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 you know, reload here. And, and I will get in, you know, there's some people that go through and they'll do one walkthrough. I'm going to walk through, I'm going to get in the back of the line, I'm going to walk through, I'm going to get in the back until they say, okay, your time's up. And I'm going to walk it as many times as I can. And I'm going to close my eyes when I'm waiting to shoot. And I'll be like, and walk it in my mind and shooting PRS, you know, especially, you know, if you got like a tower stage where there's 10 people laid down, I will sit there and I will dry fire and I'll say my dope out loud. Okay. You know, 2.6, bang, bang, 3.8, bang, bang. And just as many times as possible. Cause it's, you know, when you do get that in your mind, it's, it's there. And it's one less thing you got to think about. Then you could worry about, Oh, the wind looks like it picked up two miles an hour. Oh, this cross breeze switched a little bit. So it lets you free up mental space to worry about the other things. And I'm like this, it's like, oh, where's the targets? You know, it's a little thing you got to think about instead of where's my backpack? Oh, crap. I forgot to take my bag out of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. You were talking about USPSA is, is, is incredibly true. I mean, 
I, I was always the last guy. I was always the guy who, you know, the, the RO had to go, okay, come on, your time's up. You know, first person's ready to shoot. Right. And I was finishing up, you know, my ninth run through. And then I'd go back just like you close my eyes. And, and, um, you know, I worked with a great coach, Steve Anderson for USPSA. And, and as Steve would always say, like, if you can't close your eyes and see every detail of every target you need to shoot, then you're not ready to shoot. Um, and when you get that level of, of rehearsal down, you get that level of, of preparation. Um, it, it actually kind of freaked me out the first time it really worked. And a lot of people <clears throat> describe this. You, you get that mental movie of you shooting that stage really that detailed. And what happens is the buzzer goes off and then suddenly you find yourself in the last shooting position with a sight picture on your last target with a double in the A zone. And you're going like, what just happened? And it's, it's because your subconscious just the buzzer went off and your subconscious went, I know how to do this. Here we go. Right. And your conscious brain just like went along for the ride. And then your conscious brain comes back into action at the end when it, when your subconscious goes, okay, now what do I do? Well, you just shot the whole stage and your conscious mind kind of comes back and, and you know, that that's hugely, uh, hugely beneficial in a sport like that. Um, unfortunately only a very limited amount of that carries over to, to, um, uh, to precision rifle when there's team matches with that many unknowns involved, but there are still some things you can rehearse. And those are the things we do rehearse. Yeah. There's definitely a lot, you know, any, any sort of precision shooting sport, there's, there's a lot more mental going on. Um, so we do have a couple of live ones. Um, one of them is from the AG cup champion himself, Chad Heckler. Um, he said, these dudes are champs for reasons. They're dropping knowledge about these type of events that he could, that he really appreciates. And I love seeing guys who have not shot these matches who have, I mean, I, I mentioned Dave Preston earlier. I mean, obviously a legend in the PRS community. Um, I, I love seeing those guys come out to shoot these matches. It, it, you know, they have incredible skill sets that are different. And um, I love seeing them. I love seeing the crossover. Um, so yeah, come on out. Yeah, shoot a match. Yeah, exactly. The, the, Vorte the Vortex series, uh, I, I see more and more people. I mean, I think it's going to be an absolute humongous competitive series, the Vortex series. Uh, you know, Joe Burdick does an excellent job running them. And now they're, they're on the West Coast, on the East Coast. They're kind of all over the place. Vortex is a sponsor. I mean, everything is going the right direction. And the guys that do well in PRS have a very analytical approach to shooting. Uh, and that goes a long way in these type of matches. So, um, I'm seeing PRS guys kind of switch over here, you know, whether it be to, to get away from the drama, um, you know, the gaming, you know, whatever the, whatever the case is. Um, I, I see a lot of them kind of move over to this type of shooting and love it and kind of stick with it and, uh, you know, keep getting better. And they start off doing pretty well, right? There's a lot to learn because there's a lot they're not familiar with, a lot of new things. Um, but their approach um, that's necessary to be competitive in, in the PRS world, um, that approach goes a long way here, right? They're just additional things that you have to add on to add on with it. But yeah, those guys, those guys do really well. And we're starting to see more of them in these matches and looking forward to the, the West Coast uh, Vortex matches. I hope we get a lot of uh, PRS NRL shooters involved in that as well. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I was on the other screen. So Alan Jaworski wants to know, um, or he wants to say that this advice about stage planning and visualization is gold. It's an area that he can definitely improve in a great deal. Well, I, I've shot 
you know, neck and neck with Alan enough times. And I would tell Alan, he shouldn't apply any of the things I've said. Like just none That's of some them. good advice right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alan, just forget about it. Just shoot from the hip. You'll be fine. <laughs> now, Al Alan's a great example of somebody who came into the sport and, and, and has worked his butt off. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy who, who has made the training for mammoth, uh, uh, tag pretty famous. Um, he's, he's out there working his butt off and he's, he's, he's work, working his way to the top pretty quick. So he had his kid out there rucking with him. One day I saw on Facebook Christmas, I want to say it was Christmas <laughs> day or something. They were like, yeah. He was out rucking on Christmas and I think his, his child was with him. So well, for him, do you he's see Kristen posted at his kid? Yes. I think it was yesterday. Yes, it was very cute. He had his backpack on with two days worth of clothes in it and his Nerf gun strapped across. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I was like that. And so, see, now I think he finally found a partner that won't complain as much about the rucking part. <laughs> yeah, Ken was not a fan of the rucking. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked about before the stage, a little bit about before the match, um, then after the stage, but after the match, um, so team best targets is kind of known for like these really super analytical, just phenomenal after action reports. Um, are yeah. you the right one for this? <laughs> yeah. That the after action reports is something that Chris and I started doing years ago, um, as a way to capture the lessons that we learned. Uh, we came away from the very first mammoth. We wrote an AAR because our heads were spinning. Um, we, we realized so many things we didn't know, so many things we needed to work on. And, and that just kind of became a habit. Um, after a while, we got more and more people who would say, man, I, I came to Mammoth the first time and, and all I knew was what was in those six AARs from the last six years. And, and they came, frankly, far better prepared than we did on our first year because they read those. And mm -hmm. that was kind of cool. That was, it was really fun to see even some experienced competitors, but certainly some newer competitors mm -hmm. gain a lot from those. Um, so we write a couple of those a year. Uh, I'm actually just about to send out my one for Mammoth from this year, and I'm sure we'll probably put one together for this match as well. Um, they're valuable to, to me and to, uh, you know, Brandon and Chris and Joe and whoever I'm writing them with, um, because they give us, uh, an opportunity to look back and, and really gain some lessons that, that checklist that Brandon's talking about comes from these AARs. They come from those lessons. So if you don't, take those lessons and capture them and remind yourself of them, then you're going to make the mistake again. And I don't want to make those mistakes again. And if I can help other people not make those mistakes, then great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, it's funny, like I, you know, for instance, Jen used to write after action reports, you know, maybe on a page of a notebook or, you know, I write notes on, uh, on matchbooks, you know, on the course <clears throat> of fire, I'll be like, Hey, you know, make, this is what you screwed up on here, but this is like, straight up a white paper on how to shoot a, a team match. Um, so without us reading all of this, like what's the, what's the key stuff that you put in here? You know, I see, you know, you have your day by day summaries. Yeah. There's, there's a run through obviously of almost every stage, uh, you know, with, with our score uh, there's a, uh, our analysis of our rucks with a pace um, you know, what we did right and what we did wrong. The core of it is on the last page. Um, and I say, I guess page and a half on this one, results, lessons learned and things done well and things done wrong. Um, and um, you, know, you, you read these and, and every one of those lessons is something that we 
suffered to learn. Um, and, um, we, you know, a perfect example here, Joe and I, um, uh, this, this year, and this will be one of the things that things done wrong, is Joe and I both had some really serious physical challenges this year. Joe literally almost died in an ATV accident. And I had knee surgery five to six weeks before Mammoth this year. Um, and we both came in with a massive mindset about preparing for the match by reducing weight, packing just right, getting ready for the camping aspect of it, doing all those things and working a ton on our pistol shooting. Well, we rocked really well. We shot pistol really well. Shot rifle like garbage. Um, and, you know, we finished fifth for it. We paid for it. Um, we're not going to do that again. We made the mistake and it's been documented and we're going to take it to heart. And I think next year you're going to see us uh, at whatever rifle training facility we choose, uh, spending a lot of time there to prepare. Um, you have to you have to analyze it. You, you know, that's what the drive home is for. Um, that's you spend. A, I, I love after a match spending a couple hours. Uh, I hate it when my partner has to jump in a different car and go in a different direction. And I like it when we get to sit in the car together for two or three hours, when everything's fresh, when the pain is still fresh. And I don't mean the physical pain. I mean, the pain of, of making those mistakes and you get to capture those and try not to make them again. Yep. And, and uh, the after action review stuff actually starts while you're shooting. You know, after every single stage that Scott and I do, as soon as we done and pack up our gear, you know, we, we go we go over in a different area and say, hey, let's discuss what happened. Right. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? Um, what are the main lessons learned? And we try to write those down because um, even during a stage and after a stage. After a match, um, if you don't write these things down, like they're fresh in your mind right away. So you're going to say, hey, um, Right after this match, if I were to say, hey, uh, Scott, overall, this is what we did wrong, right? We know this is what we need to improve on next time. Well, by the time, you know, you get to that next match a month or two months later, um, you don't even remember that stuff, right? And in order to improve or maximize your improvement, um, you need to be thinking about all these different things and you need to actually implement the, the decisions that you made in the AAR. So this stuff is super important. And, you know, a lot of people, now to include myself in the past, you know, I've done a match and, you um, Later on, we regretted not putting anything down on paper because it's like, man, I made the same mistake twice or I, or I totally forgot about this. If I would have written it down, I would have remembered it. So um, it's a very good approach to trying to become a better shooter um, in all aspects of shooting. You know, it starts during the match, you know, take as many notes as you can um, on lessons learned uh, after every single stage, put it all together and, you know, you'll see some trends and um, definitely do yourself a favor and look that over before the next match, you know, especially if it's the same type of match, you know, look that stuff over. And, and I'll add one thing, when you, when you debrief after a stage and talk about the things that are done right and the things that are done wrong, the things that are done wrong are opportunities for improvement and, and nothing, nothing more. Um, the stage is over, you can't go back. Uh, so there's, everything goes in two categories, the things you did well or the things you're gonna work on. And that's it. The, the, the things done wrong is almost a, a really bad um, way to think about it. Um, because you, if you just keep visualizing what you did wrong, you'll do it wrong again. You might do it wrong again the very next stage. So mm -hmm. get it out of your head, put it behind you, write it down so that you can capture it and, and work on it for next time and put it behind you. Um, I'll, I'll put out one other thing. I've been working for the last couple months on a, a pretty big document on uh, an approach to shoot matches like this. Um, it goes from packing gear to choosing uh, stage 
planning uh, and everything like that. It's a, it, it take that AAR and multiply it by about, I don't know, 10. Um, it's going to have some segments written by a ton of different people who are uh, some of the most uh, successful people in the sport. Um, I, I'm trying to reach out to as many of the people who have done phenomenal in this sport as possible and hoping that they'll contribute to it. Uh, and I look forward to, to putting that out here real soon um, because I want it to be a sport that's accessible. I want it to be a sport that um, it uh, th that's, that's available to people. I think a lot of people look at this and say, man, I can't ever do that. And don't get me wrong, it, it's nice, the luster of something like this or the, the, the luster of the challenge of, of Mammoth, for instance, is, is great, um, but it almost doesn't have to be there. Um, these, these are accessible matches. These are things you can come and do. And these are challenges that I hope more people will take on. They're, they're a lot of fun. I mean, that's, you know, I did Mammoth and, uh, with Haley, my partner, and we, we took, uh, Sean and Greg's class. And so I do feel like we were more prepared, um, you know, mentally to, to do some of the things, but it was a lot of fun. Like, I don't want people to think, oh, we have to know all of this to do it. Like we laughed at ourselves the whole time and had like, that was by far the most fun match I think that I've done was shooting with Haley. We just had a good time. We communicated, but you know, if, if we went, if it went well, we had fun. And if it didn't go well, we just kind of laughed at ourselves. So it's something that you will learn from and have fun with. Um, and the camaraderie is great. So if anybody's considering these matches, I don't want you to get overwhelmed with like, oh my gosh, I have to read this after action report and I have to do this to get it. You know, there's a lot of good information there, but don't stress out over it either is what I'm saying. And, and just go shoot one. Cause yeah, I, I do hope people will get something out of the after action reports, but obviously um, anyone who is, who has ever even looked at one of these matches knows about Sean and Greg and knows about how much they have to teach. I mean, those guys just consistently wax the field and set the bar, um, set a bar that, that I haven't been able to meet more often than not. So um, they, those guys are phenomenal. And uh, if you were looking for two people to, to take you through a class like that, those are the right two people. Did you see the video we got of them shooting the Tahoe stage? Mm, I did. It, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's incredibly impressive, yeah. Yeah, like I got friends with expensive watches that don't mesh as well as those two do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their communication is just, um, you know, we talked about communication earlier. I think it's very, I mean, obviously they're very talented shooters also, but their communication is just uh, bar none. I mean, it's, they talk about everything while they're doing it and it, it just yep. works very smooth. really well. Yeah, and Scott and I have, you know, realized that you know, consistently shooting together is important. That's something that we need to do more of, right? Because I, I know Scott has different partners that he, that he shoots with and different friends and stuff. But, um, you know, the more you can shoot with the same person, the better it is, you know, because those AARs are, you know, most uh, specific to your team itself. So um, the more you can work out those kinks, the more efficient you guys can become. Um, you're going to see improvement every time. And Scott and I, even though, you know, we, we've competed together before and they were pretty well spaced out matches. You know, I've been out of shooting for the last, for the you know, most two or three years because of uh, new jobs, getting a new house built, all that stuff, and getting back into it. So we've, we've had a good gap in between matches. But um, even then, we've noticed, you know, pretty good improvements from when we started to, to right now. And, um, you know, that, that's going to only continue to improve. You know, now we're at a point where um, there's no stages that we completely bomb. 
Whereas when we first started off, it's like, yeah, we did actually, you know, pretty consistent throughout the whole match, except for this one stage. And uh, we no longer have that as an issue uh, because we worked out a lot of the kinks. Um, we have a better shot process, better techniques. Uh, we work together more frequently. Um, so the more you can do that, um, the less all those big, huge, bad habits go away and we don't have to worry about them. And, and ultimately it comes down to consistency. You know, if you can just do good on every single stage as compared to doing really well in this one, uh, but we bomb this one and uh, more of a mix and match, you're not going to achieve results that you want to. So this is our approach and this is what's necessary for us to um, continue to, to progress in the, in the forward direction here, just to work together more often. Mm -hmm. So let's talk gear a little bit. What uh, everybody always wants to know, like what caliber y'all were shooting, what your gun setups were like, you know, how much they weighed. Tell us a little bit about your gear you carried. All right. So, um, so gear wise, as far as most sniper matches go, um, there's typically not always, but most of the time there are caliber restrictions and there's a primary shooter and a secondary shooter. So the primary shooter and secondary shooter typically have different roles throughout the match. Um, but with that said, there are caliber restrictions. The primary shooter can typically shoot any caliber he wants to. So in this case, um, Scott was shooting the 6K Tiger, the 6GT. Um, I was shooting a 308, and the, the secondary shooter is, is uh, most often restricted to 223 or 308. So the, the tactical calibers, right? 223 or 308. Um, I was shooting a 308, and uh, as Scott had mentioned before, it, it worked out to where our ballistics match each other somehow. So that, that was a great benefit for us. But yeah, I was shooting 308. He was shooting 6GT. Um, our rifles are still on the heavy side and heavier than what I would recommend for somebody doing these matches. I think mine was like 18.2 and Scott's was like 18. So um, they're, they're certainly pretty heavy. Um, but there's there's so much to talk over as far as gear gear goes and gear selection. Um, in, this, in this particular case, my pack that I use is uh, Everly, uh, Everly Suck low drag so if you can see most of it right here you can see i have a sheet for a rifle so the rifle just goes straight into here uh, so that's one of the benefit of using this one however it is a heavy pack and again um, anything you can have that on scott has it so he can tell you right off of his paperwork there how heavy this thing is um scott scott ended up going with a, a lighter weight pack a much lighter weight pack and um but the benefit of having something like this um despite the weight um, is that I can stick the rifle right inside here and just keep rocking with it, right? So um, if you know you're going to a match where you're going to shoot a stage, immediately immediately pack up and rock to go to a different stage, um, it's extremely beneficial to, to have a pack like this where you can just stick your rifle in and go, right? Scott will show you his pack in a while, but he can't do that. But we knew going into the match that there's probably going to be a, a, a big rock followed by stages that are somewhat close to each other. So um, he could carry the rifle and we're going to be just fine. But um, that's, that's the cost of the weight on this one. So, but I, I've used this pack for quite a while. Um, Everly Stock is a great company. I wish this stuff was a little bit lighter, but great, great pack to use. So definitely look that up and I'll, I'll continue to use it in some of the matches in the future. Um, as far as tripod goes, you know, we decided, hey, we're both gonna use a tripod on this one. We, we both had different ones, but I have the uh, really, really right stuff, ultralight tripod with the Anvil 30 head, which worked out really well, uh, mounted directly to Arca. Um, and boots. Um, so boots are, or, or shoes are a huge thing because I think Scott had mentioned every, uh, Scott, what was your data on, on the shoes for, for weight wise? It was, I think the number I heard was eight to one. Eight, so to eight, one right? eight, eight pounds on your back is the same as one pound on your feet. 
for for pace and and physical exertion required. Exactly. So, so that's that's pretty crazy. So um, that goes to show how important it is to have lightweight shoes like this, right? Uh, these are super lightweight. This is the uh, Solomon uh, Speed Cross Four. So super light, basically shoes, um, which is just fine. Um, of course, in the trooper division, we can say, hey, um, this is what the weather's gonna be like for this day. So I need to pack accordingly. We ended up having nothing but rain on the, on the last day. So I ended up going with uh, waterproof boots, which are heavier. But um, Scott and I both like to typically go with the lightest thing that we can possibly uh, work with that you know fits our foot well and doesn't give us blisters and, and all that stuff. Yeah, on, on my side, I, I went with a pair of um, Ultra Lone Peaks um just a super um super lightweight shoe and a super wide toe box um which just works for my feet um i shot an eberly stock i carried an eberly stock low drag for years and years and i loved it bag was absolutely bulletproof um i still have the same one it's probably got 50 days worth of ruck matches on it um but ultimately it's about a six pound pack and uh this sierra designs is about two pounds and holds about the same amount so, uh, you know, that four pounds is just too big a difference to give up, um, especially when you're maybe getting a little older and trying to make sure that you can still survive these rucks okay. So, um, you know, maybe if I was 30, I wouldn't be quite so weight conscious, but I'm not. Um, so take those, I take those decisions uh, pretty seriously. Uh, my rifle's, a, a, as he said, is a six GT. It's a Mossing field action. Uh, it's in a KRG X-ray chassis. Um, I've shot KRGs now for almost a decade. Um, and the beautiful thing is, is you can get an X-ray, um, you can get a Whiskey 3 for competition, uh, or they're soon to be released C4 chassis. Um, and, uh, and they all feel like KRGs. They all have that same DNA to them. Um, the X-ray is the lightest version um, that has that DNA 100%. And um, it's, it's, it makes a flawless transition between your light rifles and your heavy rifles, whether you're going to a ruck match or a, or a, or a kind of a, more of a PRS match. So it still feels the same. The ergonomics are the same. Um, I, we're both shooting and, uh, Vortex Razor Gen 3s, um, which is just, I mean, on the, big, on the big scale of things, this piece of glass is just amazing, like really, really amazing. Um, we had a, a stage where we were able to um, get a few minutes to mill range, uh, a, a require, something that requires a lot of magnification and clarity to do. Uh, and we absolutely killed it, did a phenomenal job on that. Um, there were times when, uh, you know, the field of view on this is so good that you're, you're seeing, you're shooting at one target while you're seeing another uh, out of the corner of your eye. Um, the, uh, that, that, uh, that piece of glass helped us tremendously this weekend. Um, and for, I think we already kind of briefly talked about it, but for spotting and ranging, uh, Fury 5,000 ABs, um, huge field of view, great clarity, find your target, point the laser range finder at it, push a button and you have a ballistic solution instantly. Uh, and, it, and it's, it's, it's such a game changer when you don't have to, you know, go through multiple steps to get that. Um, now we still, uh, carry arm boards. Um, I don't think I'll ever not have an arm board, um, you know, with a data card. Um, there's something about paper dope that helps me sleep at night when, when uh, you go to a match like this, because um, paper doesn't run out of batteries and it doesn't have all, of me all the mechanical and electronic issues. Um, but um, 
this is this is becoming uh, more and more of an emergency backup uh, compared to the the Fury five thousand ABs because that that solves the problem for you. So we we did spend and, and, a lot uh, of time talking about gear, and it's it's uh, it's it paid off. Sorry, Brennan. Exactly. And as far as the data goes, um, the, the great thing about the Furies is that there, there's different profiles on them, which you can you know quickly manipulate from one to the other. So um, when it comes to hard data, like this card right here, um, so just to show you guys how we have our setup, um, if you look on it right here, so you can you can see that this is set up for uh, um, density altitude of 3,000 feet, right? So um, as the density altitude changes throughout the day, we update our card because that's going to ultimately change our elevation for for different distances, right? So um, we have a bunch of these printed off, and I also have Scott's on my arm board, and I have my own on my arm board. So how we have it set up is uh, in this case, because I have a 308, I have a 25 yard increment on mine, and it's gonna give me the elevation for that particular range. And we have it set up for a five mile hour, five mile hour wind. So um, when we're out there looking at the, at the wind, whether it be, you know, looking at the mirage through my, um, through my six to, to uh, 35 here, or six to 36, um, mm -hmm. I'm looking at the mirage and I say, hey, uh, you know, based on what I, what I look, uh, what I see through the, through the optic, and the mirage and the target, there's a three mile an hour full value wind. And then I just base it off of the five mile an hour. So if, if it's supposed to be uh, you know, a five mile an hour wind, according to my chart, and I'm shooting 550 yards, it's supposed to be 0.5. So I'm gonna go ahead and say, hey, uh, I need to hold 0.3 instead. So that's just a, a quick way to do it. Again, you don't want a whole, lot, whole bunch of stuff on your data card because um, you're under time constraint. You just want a, a very quick estimate of what to do. Um, with that said, it's all derived off of ballistic data. So all this stuff is 100% accurate. And the, uh, um, the range finders, again, it's nice because um, if we end up in a situation, maybe we didn't see it ahead of time, but hey, Scott, um, it just so happens that um, you need to be behind the gun this whole time. I'm gonna switch to your profile. So when, when these binos spit out the, the, the elevation, the dope immediately, I can say, hey, um, I'm not even gonna tell you the range because it's irrelevant. I'm just gonna tell you what to hold, right? So that skips a whole step, saves us time. So, um, but Scott went over his rifle. I'll go back real quick, one step, and uh, go over my rifle real quick. So I'm shooting a foundation stock impact action. All right, um, right. the same, uh, the same uh, uh, vortex optics. And uh, Skypods, you see a lot of those out there. Man, these things are awesome. Now made by MDT, but um, awesome, awesome bipod to use. And uh, man, that, that saved us a lot throughout the weekend. So this thing weighs like 19 and a half pounds. Again, way too heavy. I know foundation has lightweight stocks. Um, I'll probably soon switch to carbon fiber barrel and hopefully ultimately get this rifle down to, I don't know, 15 and a half or 16 pounds. I think that'll probably be ideal. Um, there were certainly instances in which we were shooting, uh, particularly in the offhand um, or unsupported positions where this is just ergonomically not set up for shooting like that. I mean, even if you have a sling on there, you know, I'm just like nearly freaking taking out my back just to get that rifle up there. So it doesn't work out. Whereas if you have, a 16 pound rifle, it's not ideal either for it, but it's doable, right? So that's gonna ma help maximize our points when we're shooting unsupported. So it's just something I have to do. And, and um, that's something that we both agreed on during the match and after the match where I'm like, well, if this was another four or five pounds lighter, um, that would have certainly got us points, right? You know, and that's what matters, the points matter. So, you know, we determine what can we do to, to get points? That was one of the things. So. We're both gonna work on trying to lighten those up and uh, you know see the performance difference on, on how we do on those. But uh, yeah, going back to the new Razor, 
um, you know, unbelievable. I've shot in, you know, just about all the high-end optics that are out there. Um, and a lot of the, the data, you know, the, the uh, 36 power razor, you know, you can compare the data to other, other ones in the tier in the, in the pricing group, and you're going to see a lot of similarities, but honestly, uh, what impresses me most is the data, um, or is the things that you can't quantify. You, you can't, uh, um, compare this one to this one based on this data or this measurement. Um, it's actually the, the optic itself. When I look through it, um, it's pretty crazy that even under conditions, they're not ideal to, to spot trace and see mirage. I can typically still do it with this, with the razor. So, um, you know, on, on our, on Sunday during our match, it was what, like 40, 45 degrees, Scott, max. And, yeah. and, and uh, raining, it was dreary the whole time. And, you know, those are, are typically conditions where when I shoot using a different optic, it's like, I already know I'm not going to see trace or I'm not going to see mirage. So might as well not even try, but I was like, Oh dang, I can actually see it with this thing. So, um, yeah, the six to 36 razor. I mean, it's a, uh, it's unbelievable quality and um, I, I don't regret going to it at all. So I recommend, uh, hopefully you guys have an opportunity to try them. I know um, they're kind of out of stock in a lot of places, but um, if you guys are shooting other high-end optics, you know, just get behind it, give it a try once. And um, I'm sure you'll probably see the same thing that I do because um, it's super important, especially in these type of matches. Um, if I can see where, where my partner missed you or, or see where I missed you and give them a correction, or I can determine the wind in this location uh, when normally I can't. That's a, that's a huge uh, advantage, and that's going to get points on the table, and that's what we care about. So um, definitely look at look at uh, trying to trying one of those out. We talked about arm boards and, and paper data. One other thing you use the arm board a lot for um, is to practice your artwork. Um, you know, we often get opportunities sometimes where a stage will give us art. Give us a couple minutes to to make a range card, and um, you know you get to. Uh, Chris Andrews has inspired all of my artwork, um, but you know you get to you get to make a range card and then and then act on it. Um, another opportunity to just make your range card, stick it in your armboard, and shoot based on it. Um, but you have to stay flexible. Sometimes you want data on there because you don't know what you're going to see. Sometimes you have a draw a sketch because you do know what you're going to see. Um, all, all that all that flexibility with data, whether you're using your Furies to get your data, whether you're using an arm board, whether you already have your data because you already have your ranges, um, you, you have to stay really flexible for these matches. You have to be you have to come prepared for just about anything. Awesome. And you guys said you were switching over to some carbon fiber barrels sometime soon. Yeah, thanks to Proof. Uh, Greg Hamilton and, and Proof Research put some awesome uh, a, a ton of certs on the table and uh, hats off to them. Uh, we both picked up certs for carbon fiber barrels, and uh, I think you might see them on our <laughs> rifles uh, for the finale uh, in, what is it, November? So we'll be there. Yep. That's awesome. And that kind of brings us into the our next talking point. I was going to ask, are you guys going to be there at the, the championship or finale? So I guess we'll see you guys there. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been wanting to get Scott to one of the other West Coast ones as well, because um, I, live, I live in Nevada, so... I'm pretty close to Colorado, the Utah one. Um, I would like to do those. Uh, obviously, finding a partner is the issue. Um, but so hopefully, I can talk them into uh, sneaking one more in before the finale. Um, even though we're already qualified, but we'll see. Uh, our next match that, that him and I have planned is the Real World Sniper Challenge in Texas. Uh, that's in the end of April, so just under two months away. Uh, so we're prepping for that right now. Different caliber restrictions, but overall, uh, similarly run match. 
So uh, we're definitely looking forward to that. That's always a great match that they put on there. Um, and now they've made that into a series. So um, all, all you guys out there that looking to get into this type of shooting, um, Vortex series is an awful, uh, awesome one to get into. Um, so is the Real World Sniper Challenge, and those are in Texas. So um, definitely looking forward to it. Hopefully we can hit at least uh, two more matches other than those um, this year, but trying to, trying to be more consistent with it. Hard to get it all squeezed in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. There's not enough vacation days in the year. I know that thing called work. <laughs> and, uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't help that we live across the the country from one another. That's right. Yeah. Well, Greg, are we good on lives? We are. <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, we usually about this time wind it down a shout out. So, what you got, Greg? All right, uh, we will start off with uh, GSL suppressors. Love mine, especially my little 22 right there. Shooters and sharpshooters of Augusta, um, our local indoor and outdoor ranges here. PDC Custom, most beautiful rifle chassis known to man. Shooters World Powder, which actually is, I think they posted last week, in stock here at Shooters of Augusta. Um, pretty much always in stock around there. Um, Hunter's HD Gold. Um, I'm blind and that's how I'm able to see all these targets that people looking through their 97 and a half power scopes through these little tiny tubes aren't able to see because I put on my HD gold. So they help with that a lot. Um, fix it sticks, super awesome tools. Um, if you're interested in the sum, hit me up. I got a discount code for you and Vortec to keep these things nice and sparkly clean back there. Awesome. Brandon, what you got for shout outs? Uh, I just mainly wanted to get a shout out to Vortex. Um, you know, appreciate. Um, and again, the man, I, I couldn't ask for a better optic. So I appreciate. And uh, you know, Nick was out there representing Vortex. Did a great, great job putting on the uh, the series. You know, it's a brand new series of Vortex. Putting on great matches. Look forward to the to the future ones. Um, just want to give them a shout out. Um, I end up using um, all their optics throughout the uh, you know exclusively their optics throughout the matches by choice. Um, you know, not because anyone's making me do it. So um, I appreciate it. Appreciate proof research. Um, thank you for uh, supporting the matches. I know there's a lot of great sponsors, a lot of great equipment on the prize table and everything like that. So appreciate all the, uh, the companies that contributed to the match. All right. How about Scott? Um, first, I got to I got to mention Vortex again. Vortex has been an amazing sponsor for me um, and uh, been just honored to, to be able to represent them. Nick was, uh, as he said, at the match and, and has helped put the, you know, put a, a sponsorship package that allowed these matches to happen. Joe Burdick, who, who put on a great match. Um, there were some incredible challenges this weekend from weather um, at every twist and turn, and, and he did a great job. Um, shout out to uh, a KRG as well, um, giving me this awesome uh, X-ray chassis to run um, for this year. Uh, for some of the matches that require something a little bit lighter, um, ergonomics, it's just, just a great chassis system, um, modular with all sorts of accessories to, to get you where you need to be. Um, and, um, just really lucky to really lucky to have some, some great companies to work with. Um, and, uh, of course, best targets. Awesome. They were good targets all weekend. And I don't think Mammoth had any go down the whole time either. So. Mammoth hasn't had an actual target failure in quite a while. That's right. So if anybody uh, is doing a match and needs some targets, how can they find best targets? Besttargets.com. 
All right, so check and, out. Uh, and hurry before those prices start to spike because it'll be soon. Yeah, unfortunately, like everything else in the world, uh, the, uh, the price of steel is, is going up. But jump on to bestdealtargets.com and, and come, uh, come pick up some targets. Right. All right. And for me, for shout outs, I just want to shout out the two of y'all for coming on and spending your Tuesday night with us here. And a shout out to um, Vortex and uh, to Joe for putting on the series of matches. It's five matches. For anybody that doesn't know, the next one's in Missouri next month or this month. Now it's March already. So the end of this month. <laughs> um, so I think there's still a couple of slots. Go to the Vortex Team Sniper Challenge page if you are interested and want to try and sign up. So and if you yeah, want to learn yeah, a little yeah. bit about the match, go and, and volunteer and be an RO and, and, and learn a little bit about it that way. But, but by all means, if, if this kind of shooting interests you, dive in. Exactly. But, and, uh, and don't be intimidated. You know, most people are to begin with, um, you know, they don't know much about it. They, they go there and, and uh, you know, they're, they're afraid of failure. Um, but that happens to all of us. So just go out there and, and, you know, don't care about how well you place. Everybody's out there willing to help you out, willing to, uh, you know, lend you gear. Um, just go out there and shoot it. Um, grab someone that's willing to go out there and just to reiterate the dates. So um, Missouri one, the registration is still open uh, for a Vortex Team Sniper Challenge. Uh, we just finished up in North Carolina. Um, we have, uh, let's see, the next one will be in, I believe after that will be in Colorado. So the registration hasn't opened for the other ones yet, but we have Colorado, September 28th through October 2nd. That's a Vortex Team Cyber Match. We have one in Utah, November 3rd through November 6th. It's um, in Hurricane Utah. And of course, um, if you get top five in any division, um, you are automatically qualified for the uh, Vortex Series Sniper Challenge uh, Championship, and that'll be in uh, Texas from December 8th to 11th. So, um, you know, start working on those on those matches. Uh, try to get a top five finish, and we'll see you out there. Scott and I will be out there um, in uh, at Reveille Peak. So looking forward to it. And again, the, you know, those matches, registration isn't open yet, but be looking for it because um, this is turning out to be a pretty good series, and I think the slots will probably fill up fast. So, um, you know, grab a partner right now and, and start prepping for it. That's right. So check those out. Um, they're great matches. And like you said, go ahead and get you a partner, even if you want to do some in the fall and start, you know, practicing communication and rucking if you're going to ruck and all that. So, all right. And with that, I think that this will be a wrap for episode 368 of the Shooter's Mindset. We'll see y'all next week.